So this morning we will continue back in uh, 1 Kings. We'll be in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24 this morning. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. And just for a little bit of background as to where we are, we're talking about the life of Elijah. I'm going to get this thing. Uh, I'm, I'm on a mound of grass here, and then my pulpit's rotating around on me. There you go. That's a little bit better. So uh, we're looking at the life of Elijah. And Elijah is a prophet in the Old Testament, little spoken of. But to catch you up from where we were to where we are now, the people of Israel had become tremendously ungodly, led by an ungodly king and an ungodly queen, and so they were many generations down the line of forgetting the things of the Lord, rejecting the things of the Lord, and the heart of the nation was hard and divided by the time that Elijah came onto the scene. And the Lord was judging the people. By Elijah's hand, he had sent a drought upon the people, and there was no water. And without water in a farming society, you've got a serious problem. People are going to die. And yet the people don't turn to the Lord. They don't seek the Lord's face. Instead, Ahab, as we'll see, goes on a manhunt, looking for Elijah to bring him back and threaten him. But the Lord takes Elijah first to a, uh, a creek where he's fed, and then the creek dries up, and he takes him to this widow in a foreign place um, as now, Woody talked to you about last week, and the Lord miraculously provides for them over a period of time similar to manna in the Old Testament, uh, in the time of the Exodus, where flour and water every day, just enough for the day, is provided by faith as they go forward. Well, today we are in another instance with this woman, this uh, widow, and actually, guys, this monitor is like, I don't know what's going on with it, but it's uh, maybe you just unplug it or turn it off. Thanks, appreciate it, we're going to read from chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. If you would please stand to honor the Lord this morning as we read from his word. All right, verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. May the word of the Lord be praised. Please be seated. Well, this morning, let's set this over here. Part of the reason why I wanted to talk about Elijah is that he is one of the most referred to characters in the Old Testament in the New Testament. And there's something important about that. The Old Testament characters referenced in the New Testament should wake us up to a few things. All right, I'm, I'm downwind. I, I got all kinds of adjustments here this morning. Bear with me. I got to change my, my holders to the other side or I'm going to be fighting this the whole time. 
There we go. All right. Old Testament characters referenced in the New Testament should remind us of a number of important things. Three things, in fact. The first is that Old Testament stories are not myths. They are spoken of as real historical characters to be recognized. And almost every time I refer to an Old Testament character, you're going to hear me say that. Because I believe that most of us, even in a subconscious way, tend to think of these people as not real people and not real events, but somehow mythologized. And something, everything about these people's lives is lost if we think of them as not real. They were real people that lived in real history and really served and loved and honored the Lord in the same way that we do. And so I want you to, if you have Elijah in the myth category in your mind, I want him to be taken out of that category and put solidly into the real character category. The second thing about Old Testament characters that are referred to in the New Testament is that Jesus affirms and refers to almost every major Old Testament character in his ministry. And so if you believe in Christ as your Savior and you believe the words of Christ are true, and I do, then this puts you in a, in a wrestling match if you have struggles with the Old Testament. Because if Jesus based his ministry upon the works of the Old Testament and he referred to and spoke of them as real things and real supernatural events, you also have to accept those things. We cannot accept Jesus and reject his word. Jesus recognized the radically supernatural aspects of these people's lives and then himself went on to conduct a supernatural ministry. If you're struggling here this morning with the idea of the supernatural, something beyond the natural order of things, beyond a 24-hour day and gravity and physics, and that there's something beyond that, you need to understand that the ministry of Jesus Christ was a supernatural ministry, something outside of nature, coming in, God acting on the world. And he recognized that this was not a new thing that God had been acting on the world since the time of creation, the first supernatural event of the world. So thirdly, Old Testament and New Testament are part of the same sovereign plan of God. The works that God worked in the Old Testament were not disconnected from the New Testament. They were all building towards the Messiah being sent, toward God sending his son Jesus. So there was prophecy and there was fulfillment. There were examples of faith and action in the prophets, but then there were also negative examples of sin and rebellion. The tying together, the bringing together of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I want to note for you in your Bible study that if you're reading in the New Testament, most people read in the New Testament more than they read in the Old Testament. And if you come across one of these references to a character or an event in the Old Testament and you say, I don't really know who that character is. I don't really know what that event is. It should cause you to stop in your Bible study and say, I, I need to go figure out who that is and go look it up in one of your cross-references at the bottom of the page or whatever you need to do to figure out who that character is and what they did and why it is that they're being referred to in the New Testament. And so this morning, before we fully move away from the widow at Zarephath passage, I want to look at how Jesus speaks about the widow at Zarephath. And you might say, Jesus spoke about that? Yes, he did. In Luke chapter 4, Verse 25 and verse 26, which is at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, when he has come out of his time of, of temptation and he is moving into an open and public ministry, he goes into the synagogue at Nazareth 
and he is the one to read the scroll for that day. And he pulls down Isaiah, goes to Isaiah 61, to a chapter that is specifically a messianic chapter about the Messiah that is to come. And he unrolls the scroll, and he reads it, and he says to them, In your presence this has now been fulfilled, which he is openly and clearly saying that I am the Messiah that has come to fulfill this prophecy from long ago. And the people's reaction to him is somewhat predictable, but one without faith. They say, what? This is Joseph's son. We all know this guy. Like, what are you talking about? This just doesn't make any sense. And Jesus speaks and says a, a very famous and well-known line, a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. And then he goes and refers directly to what Woody talked to you about last week and preached to you. In verses... Um, 25 and 26 Jesus says this but in truth I tell you there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow and there were many lepers and we'll, we'll save that for another day that's another instance he refers to an instance in the life of Elisha next but the widow of Zarephath, what is Jesus talking about? Why is he referring to this widow at this point in time? Well, nothing is accidental with the Lord. No action of the Lord is taken carelessly or without thought. Everything is done in a planned and perfect way. And so the actions that the Lord took with Elijah to send him far away to a widow in a different land is going to now become a, a parable or an example, if you will, of God's blessing moving on to foreigners when those blessed with God's presence do not believe or obey. So in the time of Elijah, many generations of Israel had heard the word of the Lord and been exposed to the word of the Lord and had rejected it. And they'd gotten tired of it. And their hearts had grown cold and hard and divided. And they were going after Baals and Asherah, which is the, the female uh, version of Baal, and Elijah was sent to call these people back. And a great famine comes on the land, but nobody calls out to the Lord. There's no indication of, of great turning amongst the nation. There's no indication that any of the spiritual leaders of that time say, well, perhaps we should repent and go back to the Lord and seek his face. No, they continue on in hard-heartedness. And so the Lord goes and takes the, the prophet, his word, his salvation to a different people, to a different land, and blesses them, none of the widows of Israel. And so what is happening in Jesus' life, because this points to what is going to happen later in the life of Christ, <coughs> excuse me, is that Jesus is coming to his own people, coming to the Jews, and yet they do not accept him. In John 1, 11 through 13, it says this, He, or Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So a similar thing was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. He came to his own people, to the Jewish people, the people chosen of the Lord. But their hearts were cold, they were divided, they were hardened, they were not interested in the message of Jesus Christ. And so when he came preaching to them, they rejected him, and they did not hear him, and they did not believe in him. And so the message then goes out to the Gentiles, to other people that would believe, that would listen. 
And so what do these things have to do with us? And I believe they have much to do with us. Because if you take an example from the Old Testament and an example from the New Testament, and you look at us down through a progression of time, what is America if not a place that has heard the gospel, had the Bible exposed to us, preached about Jesus Christ for many generations, and yet our hearts have grown cold and divided and hard and uninterested in hearing about the things of the Lord? We are over-familiar, if you will, with the things of Jesus Christ and our hearts no longer listen to him, and our culture is characterized by a great turning away from the things of the Lord. May it not be so with us. May we recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. May we obey him, worship him, seek his blessing instead of his judgment upon us in this time. But this takes us now to the next part of this passage. So there's two things, two incredible things that happen here with this one widow in this one situation that she might be convinced that the Lord is God and that his words are true and that these things might be recorded that we also might be convinced that the Lord is true and his words are right. And so it is a story about sickness and it's a story about a series of prayers and a healing brought upon this household that this widow's child may not die. This is the first account in the scriptures of someone being raised from the dead. But it is not the first person that knew that this was possible. We learn about the life of Abraham and Isaac. And when God commanded Abraham to take Isaac up onto the mountain and to sacrifice him, it was a scary thing. The Lord ended up staying the hand of Abraham and stopping him from that action because it was a test. But we learn in Hebrews eleven nineteen that the faith of Abraham was so great that he knew and believed that God would accomplish his purposes even if it involved raising his son from the dead. And so Abraham had faith that these things were possible, but they were not needed in his time. And so Elijah prays over this boy. The boy dies, first of all. His breath stops when we stop breathing. It is, it is death. And the reaction is very interesting in verse 18 to the boy dying because we would understand that they have been together for some time, that Elijah has been in the house of this woman with her child long enough to develop a relationship with him and to just mourn when this child dies and not understand what God is doing. But her reaction is this in verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause death to my son. So we're not given any explanation here, but there's some sin in her past that she knows is grievous. And as soon as this terrible thing happens, she thinks that it's because of her sin that God is coming to judge her and destroy her life because of her sin. But Elijah does not judge her. And this is not why this thing has happened. And I want to make a, an important connection here. Because death comes to all of us in a fallen world. We live in a world where the Lord God originally said to Adam and Eve, if you rebel against me, the wages of your sin will be death. And it is truly death. Unless Jesus comes again, all of us will die a physical death at some point, at some time. And this is part of the pain and the suffering that we have in the normal course of this fallen world. And so the premature in her eyes and in our eyes of a young person dying is a grievous thing. It's sad. It's hard to deal with because as the Bible says, death is an enemy. 
It's something that comes to us in a way that is never easy and is never um, a joyful thing or something that we welcome. Instead, death is something that comes from sin and wickedness in the world. But it is not always, and it is seldom, I would say, directly related to some sinful action that we take. And so the death of her son is not related to her sin. It is a, it is a pattern of a fallen world. And yet Elijah is led to pray for the life of the boy. And when we are led to pray for things, we should pray for them because we're going to see this faith of Elijah connected to James uh, chapter 5 later in the sermon and how his great faith is part of an example of why it is that we should pray for the healing of people. And so Elijah cries out to the Lord. He cries out. He takes the child upstairs to a private place and begins to pray for him. And so we have to start looking at the prayer life of Elijah. Elijah was not a person who prayed in a normal way or in a way that you and I are used to. He was a person that prayed in a fervent way. James chapter 5 verse 17 says that he fervently prayed that the rain would stop, that the drought might come, that God's judgment might come upon the people. He prayed fervently and God heard his prayer. Next, we see him praying for this widow's son. He prays fervently, but he prays once, and there is no answer. And he prays again, and there is no answer. And he prays a third time until the Lord answers. It is over and over and over that he goes back to the Lord until the Lord hears his prayer. We're going to see in a few weeks to come this incredibly bold prayer for the Lord to send fire down from heaven. It's got to be the most bold public prayer I think ever prayed in the scriptures. And the Lord answers this prayer and proves himself strong. And then finally in the end when it is time for it to rain again, Elijah goes and he prays and he prays and he prays and it says he prays seven times over and over that the Lord God would send rain back to the land and that the posture of his prayer is spoken of, that his face is to the ground. It says his head is, is between his knees as his face is on the ground in the greatest possible position of humility before the Lord, asking for the Lord to send his merciful blessing back upon the people of the land that there might be rain again, and God answers his prayer. And so when we look at the people of Scripture as exemplary to us, as real people, you have to ask yourself, do I pray like this? Does my, do my prayers look anything like the prayers of Elijah? Do I pray for my kids or, or my marriage like Elijah prayed for things? Where I never stop, I never stop praying. I, I don't give up in praying. The posture of my praying, the, the passion of my praying is deep and I keep seeking after the Lord that he might give what has been laid on my heart to pray for. Do you pray for your lost friends, your lost family members, your lost spouse, your lost children? Do you pray for their salvation like Elijah prayed? Do you pray for the church like Elijah prayed? Do you pray for missionaries like Elijah prayed? Do you pray for the healing of your sick loved ones like Elijah prayed for them? We're given this pattern in the New Testament that we should pray in a way similar to Elijah, this righteous man, for those who are sick in our midst, that the Lord might bring healing. 
In James chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, I would ask every person, just stick, keep your finger here in 1 Kings, but turn over to James chapter 5 because we're going to camp out here for a little bit, little bit. Because the first time I read this, it just jumped off the page at me. James chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 16 through 18, which is in the midst of this section about praying by faith. James 5, 16 through 18 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. What I want to hone in on here is this phrase, this shocking phrase, that Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. He's a human being with a nature like ours. This goes back to what I said earlier, that Elijah is not a mythological character. But he's also not a, a superman. He's not someone from a different category. He is a person that has a nature just like you and just like me which means many things. But I want to look at one other passage because this is not the only time this is said. In Acts 14, 15, Paul and Barnabas are ministering in the city of Lystra and, and a man is healed and they uh, are the, the people of the town try to worship them like a god. They go and get a cow to offer to them and garlands and they think that, that Paul is Hermes because he's the speaker and they think Barnabas is Zeus and they're getting ready to worship these guys. And Paul stops the whole show and says, this is out of control. I am not a God. I am a man at, with a nature, the same phrase, with a nature just like you. What does this mean? What does this mean that it, Paul and Barnabas and Elijah and every other godly person that was ever used of the Lord to do tremendous things had a nature just like you and me? What it means is that they were real people that had real doubts they had real distractions in their lives. They had real physical pains and sufferings and reasons why it hurt to get up in the morning and why they wanted to go to bed early at night. They were tempted by real sins that could have derailed their entire ministry. We're going to see in the life of Elijah, Elisha, Elijah uh, that he faced real depression. I think actually one of the greatest passages in seeing how we deal with depression in our lives comes from the life of Elijah. Did you realize that? They had to sleep. They had the same 24 hours in a day that you and I have. They didn't have more time than we have. They had the same fears of man, fears of being attacked, of being put out, of not having enough to eat, of going to jail. They suffered with the same sicknesses and struggles that we do. They were not super people. They had the same nature that we have. And so what was so different? How is it that their lives were so significantly used of the Lord in a way that is different than what we see in the lives of most people? Well, certainly there is the calling of God upon their life, but there is the reaction to that calling, which is so different than the majority of our lives. They were, first of all, radically obedient. Uh, Justin talked to you about this Last week, and forgive me, I go back and forth between Woody and Justin. He was Woody to me forever until he became Justin. Now I'm trying to call him Justin. But uh, what he talked to you about last week, radical obedience, going and obeying what the Lord calls you to do to any extent, 
with no conditions and with no reservations. They were all radically obedient. We read about the things in their life and we get the, the, the perspective of seeing the whole thing all the way to the end and all that God does and think, man, that had, that, this was great. What a great story. They had no idea it was going to end up like that when they were living in the midst of it. There were no guarantees that anything was going to work out. They just obeyed God one step at a time and they kept obeying. They had enormous faith. They believed God. They believed that he was real. They believed that God had a real plan that he was really working and they would not stop following after God. Each one of these characters had great moral holiness. They sought to obey the Lord and when they failed, they confessed their sin in a, in a passionate way and went back to honor the Lord with their life. They did not wander away into sin. They had no plan for their life except for God's plan for their life. The overriding thing that each one of these characters in the Old Testament that were so used of the Lord is that they wanted God's will to be fully worked out in their life. And they held back nothing. They risked everything. And they just did not care about the things of this world. They had no love for the things of this world. They were looking to the next life. They were looking for the life yet to come in the Lord. They were looking for a promised land. And so it is that as they walked by faith and they walked in holiness and they held back nothing, that the Lord used them terrifically. And the Lord spoke to them, spoke through them, and used them in a way that is unusual. And so Elijah, in this spirit, in this way, of a nature like ours, but with great faith, calls out to the Lord and asks for the life of this child. And it says that the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. We're told over and over in the Bible that the Lord hears the voice of his faithful children. The Lord hears the voice of the person that confesses their sins and walks with the Lord and wants to serve and honor the Lord. And that when we get down on our face and on our knees and ask God and seek him for what is on our heart and we keep doing it, that the Lord hears our prayers. And that's, an, that's a shocking thing. The idea of God in heaven seated on his throne of grace hearing our prayers about the things that matter to us. But this is what the Bible says happens. He asks, and the Lord responds. The Lord would have us to seek and to ask in a way that is similar to the prayers of Elijah, that we would ask and seek in great and total dependence, that we would not pray while we are also scheming for how we can work the situation out ourselves when God does not answer but that we put ourselves in full dependence upon the Lord, that we repeatedly over and over come back seeking to take hold of his garment as it were. God, please, please hear me in this. I'm gonna come back again and again and again until Lord, you answer this prayer. That we come with tears and passion, that we are not a dispassionate, cold people when we come and pray to the Lord. And that the posture of our lives and the posture of our bodies is one of humility before the Lord. 
And so we know the result is from God because when we come and we pray in this way, we know when the prayer is answered that it is no coincidence. We know for fact that the answer is from the Lord because we have sought it long. We have sought the the answer of the Lord with passion in all manner of things and the Lord supplies these things and always the answer or the response, I should say, is the same as this woman where the the response is that this is a work of the Lord. Something has happened here that is of God. I asked God for it. I prayed for it. It was according to his word, and the Lord supplies it, and now I know that the Lord is true. And what happens is that the Lord builds our faith. We start from a young age praying for things, and we see the Lord answer. We pray for things as a teenager, and we see the Lord answer. We pray for things in our young adulthood, and we see the Lord answer. And then when we get into adulthood, we're often the most hard and difficult things happen. We have a great foundation of hope in our heart that the Lord exists, and we can come to him and pray for him, pray to him for harder things than we ever prayed for before and bigger things that we know even as adults are completely outside of our control but God is able and does act in ways that glorify himself and are supernatural that we might give glory to God and that the watching world might give glory to God and that future generations might give glory to God by the way that the Lord acts and works and so I want to read another story Another story of of prayer and of godliness and of an unreserved love for the Lord that I I just think it's important to read about stories that are outside of the Bible that you might see that God has been at work and is still at work in our time. And so if you go and read church history and biographies, you're going to find stories that are similar all over the place of godly people that lived an unreserved, passionate life for the Lord and were willing to obey God to any extent. And when they do these things, the Lord answers in prayers that are absolutely shocking and God-glorifying. So this was first written uh, in 1891. This is John Patton. John Patton was a missionary to the South Seas cannibals. And you talk about a person that lived an unreserved life for the Lord. He and his wife first went there, and upon touching down on the island, within the first six months, his wife died. And it was just absolutely rocked his world. And we talk about death coming as an enemy. Uh, And it came to him, but he gave these things to the Lord, and the Lord strengthened him to continue on with years of ministry on this island. And this was one of these occasions. Worn out with long watching and many fatigues, I lay down that night early and fell into a deep sleep. About 10 o'clock, the savages again surrounded the mission house, my faithful dog clinging still to me amidst the wreck of all else on earth, sprang quietly upon me and pulled at my clothes and woke me, showing danger in her eye and glancing at me through the shadows, I silently woke Mr. and Mrs. Matson, who had also fallen asleep, and we committed ourselves in a hushed prayer to God. Don't, don't overlook the fact that they're getting ready to be attacked by cannibals, and the first thing that they do is what? They get out on their knees and ask God for mercy and help, and they start praying. Knowing that they could not see us, Immediately a glare of light fell into the room, and men passed with flaming torches. And first they set fire to the church all around, and then to a reed fence connecting the church and the dwelling house. 
In a few minutes, the house too would be in flames and armed savages waiting to kill us on attempting an escape. Taking my harmless revolver, so by way of context, he carried a Barney Fife revolver around. It had no no bullets in it, but he would use it periodically as like a, a show of force, and you'll see what happens here. Taking my harmless revolver in the left hand and a little American tomahawk in the right, I pled with Mr. Matson to let me out and instantly again to lock the door on himself and his wife. He very reluctantly did so, holding me back, saying, Stop here. Let us just die together, and we, you will never return. I said, Be quick. Leave that to God. In a few minutes, our house will be in flames, and then nothing will be able to save us. He did let me out and locked the door again quickly from the inside. And while his wife and he prayed and watched for me from within, I ran to the burning reed fence and cut it from top to bottom and tore it up and threw it back into the flames so that the fire could not be spread to our dwelling house. I saw on the ground shadows as if something were falling around me and started back. Seven or eight savages had surrounded me and raised their clubs in the air. And I heard a shout, kill him, kill him. One savage tried to seize hold of me, but leaping from his clutch, I drew the revolver from my pocket and leveled it as if for use, my heart going up to God in prayer. I said, dare to strike me and my Jehovah God will punish you. He protects us and will punish you from burning his church for hatred uh, to his worship and his people for all of your bad and sinful conduct. We love you all and for doing you nothing but good, you want to kill us. But our God is here, and he will protect us, and he will punish you. And they yelled in rage and urged each other to strike the first blow. But the invisible one restrained them, and I stood invulnerable beneath his invisible invisible hand and succeeded in rolling back the tide of the flame from our dwelling house. At this dread moment occurred an incident which my readers may explain as they like, but which I trace directly to the interposition of my God. A rushing and roaring sound came from the south like the noise of a mighty engine or a muttering thunder. And every head was uh, instinctively turned in that direction. And they knew from previous hard experience that it was one of their awful tornadoes of wind and rain. And now, Mark, the wind bore the flames away from our dwelling house. And it came in the opposite direction. No power on earth could have saved us from being consumed. It made the work of destroying the church only a few minutes, but it brought with it a heavy rain and murky cloud, which poured out a perfect torrent of tropical rain. Now mark again, the flames of the burning church were thereby cut off from extending to and seizing the reeds and the brush. And besides, it had become almost impossible now to set fire to our dwelling place. It was soaked with rain. The stars in their courses were fighting against Sisera. The mighty roaring of the wind and the black cloud pouring down unceasing torments and the whole surroundings awed the savages into silence. And they began to withdraw from the scene. All lowered their weapons of war and several terror-stricken exclaimed, That is Jehovah's reign. Truly their God is fighting for them and helping them. Let us away. And a panic seized upon them and they threw away their remaining torches. And in a few moments they had all disappeared into the bush and I was left alone, praising God for his marvelous works. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. That's an incredible story of a person with a nature like ours, a person that as a young man was called to mission work and submitted his life to go to the mission field 
and to do whatever it took to tell people that didn't know about Jesus who Jesus was. John Patton was full of faith. He was full of holiness. He was abandoned to the things of this world. He was dependent on Christ. And the Lord heard his prayer in time of need. And so in verse 23 of our passage, Elijah brings the child downstairs. A miracle has occurred. And the widow says, Now I know that you are truly a man of God and represent the living God. And so in closing our time together today, I ask you, do you have great faith and obedience in our time? Or are you like the people of Jesus' time and the people of Elijah's time with a tired and divided heart? Do you obey all that God calls you to? Are you dependent fully upon the Lord? Do you pray fervently, repeatedly? The people of Elijah's time and the people of Jesus' day, for the most part, did not see the power of God because they did not believe and they did not ask. I want us to be a people that do believe and a people that do ask and a people that see the power and the work of the Lord poured out in our time. I want us to live radically obedient lives. I want us to live holy lives, lives that are sacrificial in showing the work and love of the Lord to this world. I want us to risk and venture greatly for the Lord. I want us to care for the orphans and the needy and the widows. I want us to share the gospel with people that have not heard. I want us to plant new churches and send out missionaries from this church. And these things we praise God for are happening. And, but we pray for them to happen in a greater extent. And we pray for this work to endure and to continue on for many years to come. Uh, Justin's going to be talking to you a little bit here about the, the start of a new church in Stafford coming out from our church. And for this, I praise God. This is something that was only a thought some years ago and now is coming into reality. But I also want to talk to you about something that is, is happening that came back from our trip in Rwanda. Josiah and Stephanie Luttrell are there faithfully ministering, but they have room and place and are seeking two more people to come and serve with them in Rwanda. They're seeking a married couple or two young men to come and serve with them for a period of two years. Through the, the giving of the International Mission Board and cooperation of other churches, all the expenses are paid. The billet is open, and I am asking you to pray and to consider whether you would give two years of your life, whether the Lord would be calling you to give two years of your life to missionary service in the heart of Africa to tell people about Jesus and to help the gospel be spread in that area. I do believe that the Lord is going to call two people out of our church to go and do this. But if he doesn't, he'll call two other people. But the opportunity will have been missed by us, I believe. And so let's pray together that our hearts might be given to the Lord in a way that is unusual. Let's pray. Father, God, we love you, and I thank you for this passage. And I thank you for Elijah in the godliness of that man. It is inspiring to, to listen and to read about his life and the lives of others like John Patton. And Father, I pray that you would help us, people that have a fallen, broken human nature. May you be at work in, our, in us by your Spirit to take us so far beyond what we can do, what we can ask or think or imagine, but that we might live lives that are full of faith and believing, full of obedience, full of radical obedience that lays down our plans for your plans. 
and that we follow after the leading of your spirit. When we know what we should do, Lord God, may we go and do it. May we do the things that you call us to do that the world might say there is a God. There is a living God and the God of the Bible is true and his salvation is right. We pray, God, for your work in our midst. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.